1: Good morning, Swarm, and welcome to Tinfoil Hat. You know I am. You know, you know what I'm here to do. I am here to. Rock. Apparently, I'm Mushmouth Tripoli. Everybody, <laughs> join me as always, Xavier Gray and Jay Nice, Johnny Woodard. How are you guys? you are doing good. Great show today, Woo. dude. Heavy hitter. This is like this
2: book. I always thought it was like the the ultimate red pill. You know, it's like a real introduction to if, you, if you're somebody you want to kind of ease somebody into this today way yeah so let's
1: t- today we have tom o'neill who wrote the book chaos i know yep. a lot of you guys might have heard Ron rogan but i've been wanting to do this episode for a very long time and we finally got to make it happen after having internet problems and all that stuff i'm sure the guy who wrote stuff about the cia and the podcast that talks about the cia could have internet problems every once in a while <laughs> and it's a really interesting book and i hope you guys go check it out if uh, you didn't get it when he was on Rogan show but it is a really interesting book cuz there's so many parallels to what's been happening the last I don't know 20 years in the United States man I mean the book came out in 2019 but I mean you I like the last 2 years of just all the chaos going on it, this is where it kind of all started to evolve and I think it's a wonderful conversation and you know, if I finished the book, you know it's a good book because <laughs> I I have a monkey that plays symbols in my head, <laughs> and he just like it gets real quick to clang 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 clang. And I was able to get through this book very quickly because it is such a great read. And if you guys want to listen to the, his audio book, just click the link below and uh, rock and roll because it's a great book. It's a great book. Uh, I prefer reading, but if you want to listen to it, you're for free for free. Yeah. for free you can and uh yeah that's that uh great things are going on here Great things are going on. Big weekend for the tinfoil hat comedy tour. We are in Aurora. So if you're in the Chicago area, come get weird with us. Somebody said, it's not that close, but it is what it is. Okay. So we're in Chicago. This is as close I'm going to get to Chicago as Aurora, Illinois. First show almost sold out. Second show got some tickets for Swarm Tank. That's where we enter. We answer your questions. Now, Flow Fest is coming. According to the thing, you can go to Float Fest for free. Free. There's some free tickets, but there's also VIP tickets. So go check it out. It's gonna be it's the second annual Float Fest. Eddie Bravo, Xavier Guerrero, myself, uh Tino Sanchez, Reed Becker, all gonna be there. And then May 4th, go check out Comedy Chaos live at the Comedy Store. Grab your tickets now. Uh, we're gonna have a uh, we're gonna have one or two more comics. Should be a banger. As always, and that's that Laguna Niguel, on uh, May 11th. Uh, anything else? Would you guys got any live shows coming up?
3: No, no live shows up now, but uh, dude, I'm gonna be there May 4th. It's gonna, your lineup is crazy, it's gonna be your crazy lineup here. is crazy, and
1: hey, it's only getting better. Yeah, uh, so buy your tickets do,
2: now, It will sell out. No, I mean, I'm very it's excited. Chaos about it. Known shit.
1: And, and uh, Broken Sim, uh, did yeah, we,
2: we we're gonna record another one this week. Yeah. Uh, there's gonna be a new one on YouTube too. Uh, oh. Check it all out. Actually, for anybody who wants to know, tomorrow,
3: live, we don't smoke the same, from 7 to 9, we got Hibbler on.
2: Oh, yeah. Like new. Doc. His new yeah. doc just dropped. Yeah, it oh, just I heard we make an appearance yeah. in that. What's someone, that? someone sent me a message that we have. Uh, We're in it? That's what somebody said. Oh. They said, I enjoyed your cameo. Mom,
1: I'm in a movie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But yeah, so he's I gonna be there that. tomorrow. If you got any Flat Earth questions,
3: we super chat. So go in there and shoot them out. So
1: there. that's that's go check that out. Uh, I'll include the link to Hitler's new movie. That's how much I love Tom Rockfin. Rockfin. It's Tom Rockfin, go check it out. Uh, t-shirts available. Tim Fall had t-shirts new. I know you guys are sending me t-shirts. I'm very specific. Please don't get offended if I don't use your shirt. I'm very specific. On um, what I want on the t shirt. Okay, so keep sending them. If we use them, I'll pay you a hundred bucks. Uh, send them to uh, uh, contact Sam Tripoli or whatever's on the website or Sam Tripoli Live at Gmail. Go check that out. Uh, if you want to support the show, great way to get shirts is T-shirts.com. Click, you can put that in or you can click the link at Sam com. Sam Tripoli has everything you need. Uh, tickets, uh, free shows. If you want to see some free shows, I have a bunch of audio you can get for free. Tim Full Hat. Broken Sim, which is basically... I just go around LA and my life and look for danger and try not to die so you have something to hear about. It's uh it's basically the the taxi driver of, of this reality. We call it the sports center of the broken simulation. Cash daddy's Timfall uh broken, excuse me, Cash Daddy's financial show, Punch Drunk is a sports show. And then Union and the Unwanted just dropped a new one about food and growing your own food. And then from the vaults of Conspiracy Social Club and uh, zero, my spiritual podcast. Go check it out, man. I'm telling you, these shows are really important, and I think you should go check it out. We have uh some premium content for you at Rockfin, dot ncom Just go check it out. That's R O K F I N dot com. Ten dollars gets you everybody on the website. You can watch all of this content, it is the Netflix of Content creating, premium content, go check it out. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Okay, listen, I take Athletic Greens because I love the energy, the vitamin, and the boom I get every morning. Okay, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 quality vitamins, vitamins, Minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and epigens to help you start your day right, okay? The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, okay? It is all things, okay? It's lifestyle-friendly, all right? Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten free it's got it okay tons of people are taking some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body can actually absorb okay it's re- just check out athletic greens got over 7005 star reviews okay right now it's time to reclaim your health and Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into flu and cold season. It's just one scoop on a cup of water a day. That's it. That's it. No need for a million different pills, supplements, to look out for your health anymore okay it's real simple make it easy athletic Greens is going to give you one free supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packets with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash tinfoil again that's athleticgreens.com slash tinfoil and take ownership of your health and pick and pick up a daily nutritional insurance is there anything else guys is there anything else? Nah. Hibbler's got his new show on there, uh, his new movie on there. Please go check it out. Uh, guys, enjoy this episode with Tom O'Neill and about his book, Chaos, about the Charles Manson murders and everything that led up to that and the role of the CIA in it. It's a wonderful book. Check it out. Enjoy the interview. Here we go deep, homeboys. Darren, open your mind. Drink guys okay let's get into it super excited uh against all odds this episode happens we're very excited to have him on this has been one of my dream episodes I've been wanting to do this for a while and you know the podcasting gods finally relented and let it happen I'm very excited uh, he has written one of the best books out there uh, I loved it and it's a thick book and I <laughs> I got through all of it and it was great the book is called chaos Charles Manson the CIA and the secret history of the 60s. Please welcome to the show, Tom O'Neill. Tom, how are you? Pretty good now, Sam. Now that I can hear you crystal clear, clear, it's great. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for putting up with Mm. our our tech difficulties. And, Mm. uh, you know, I'm glad this is finally happening. And I love your book so much, Tom. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Tom, real quick, is there any websites or anything, social media, you'd like to push so that uh, the listeners can find you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I kind of compile a lot of documents, photos, and audio and video stuff related to the book on Instagram and Facebook. (laughs) I always forget the name of the Instagram. Uh, I think it's called Chaos Manson or Chaos, the book. As you can see, I'm not the best with... uh, IT shit or yeah, yeah. It, it's
1: stuff. totally fine. It's most of it's toxic anyway. Oh, it's called
0: it's called. Yeah, if you just go to Instagram, it's called Chaos Charles Manson. That's one word.
1: This is a great book. It was given to me by my friend. Uh, he bought it for me, uh, uh, Tino Sanchez, and he's like, "You got to read this book." And man, it is a well-written of you know, I mean, deep dive into a time of change in uh, in the United States and you know we just lost Kennedy and here we start to see like this this really chaotic time in America I mean giant leaders being assassinated uh you know psyops on psyops on psyops and you know the book itself It was like it uh, took a miracle to get done kind of, you know, based on what we read and just you kind of moved forward, even when the powers that be kind of wanted to not do it. Right. Is that is that true? Can you tell us how the book came to be? There were
0: lots and lots of obstacles from lawsuits to kind of physical and verbal threats. And uh, there were many, many times I never thought I was going to be able to finish, but everything kind of fell together. And around 2017, I got a collaborator who was fantastic. And once uh, we got away from a, a publisher who was suing us, the first one sued me for, I guess they wanted the book and they got impatient. Uh, and there were just so many, so many problems. So some days I still can't believe it, it ever did come out, but it's out there now and uh, pretty happy with it.
1: So, uh, I mean, you know, the Charles Manson murders shock the world. Uh, Here we are again. I don't know how deep you go into some conspiracies and that, but, you know, we had this kind of push and and this, like, you know, this hippie culture that was getting really big and everyone was getting into free love. And we saw a lot of this anti-war movement going on. And then suddenly we have these, these, you know, Charles Manson murders. And bam! Suddenly, hippies are scary. Hippies joining the anti-war movement could get you in trouble. What What is your feeling about that whole time?
0: Uh, well, I was yeah, when I was a kid. I was ten, pretty much at the height of the sixties, sixty nine, and I really wanted to be a part of it. But I was in a suburb. Uh, I couldn't get any more white middle class <laughs> suburb of Philadelphia. And I saw it through rosy lens lenses that a lot of people see it through. is all just peace and love and, uh, you know, trippy colors and great music and stuff. It wasn't until I began this book in 1999, so about 30 years after the events, that I realized there was a much deeper kind of undercurrent of... Um, you know, violence and real evil, real malice. And uh, at first, you know, when I began the book, I thought it was just, you know, drugs impacting this culture and screwing with people's heads. But then I eventually, and this is where the book got crazy, was kind of followed a a crumb trail that led me to these intelligence groups uh, from our own federal government that were um, infiltrating the 60s kind of anti-war left-wing movement and provoking them to commit acts of violence for their various uh, for their various reasons. And I wasn't the one that discovered this. You know, this was all found out first in about 1973 or 74. Um, one of the programs was exposed. It was called COINTELPRO. It was an FBI uh, secret operation to pretty much go after, again, anti-war movement, Black Panthers, Black radicals, and set them up to commit crimes to give um, law enforcement a reason to arrest them, but also to commit crimes that would uh, allow law enforcement to engage in a gun ba- gun battles with them, and also to pit rival groups against each other. Um, the files for this. Operation were obtained by a a group in 73, 74. They they robbed the archive of the FBI, one of the off-base, off-campus archives. So COINTELPRO was exposed in 74. I mean, there were public records of uh, congressional hearings into it. Then there were two other programs that were um, discovered a year or two later, One was called Chaos, which was run almost identically to COINTELPRO using agent provocateurs, except they were CIA agents instead of FBI agents. And again, they would take informants either from within the groups, people who were released from prison just to infiltrate the groups, or even agents who would disguise themselves depending on the group. You know, If it was left-wing anti-war group, they might disguise themselves as long-haired hippies. If they were um, sorry, I just got to get rid of this one thing. If they were uh, a black militant group, then they would have black agents or black informants, criminals, uh, provoke and and do all kinds of things. And the third the third agency was called, or the third um, kind of operation was called Operation MK Ultra, which was different but also blended in. And MK Ultra was begun much earlier, nineteen. 19- 48, 49, it began as Artichoke Bluebird and then evolved into what was called MK Ultra in 50, 52, 53. And that was a brainwashing program where yeah. citizens of the United States were tested or, or being experimented with without their knowledge, using all kinds of things, but principally LSD and other drugs, to try to create people who, the ultimate objective was to create programmed assassins. So all of this stuff kind of came together in this Hot this in 1967, hate Ashbury D- district at the same time that a guy named Charlie Manson, who was then 32 years old and pretty illiterate and pretty kind of a small time calm who had spent about half of his life at that point in federal reformatory schools as a kid. And then in federal prisons, as you know, um, a felon who committed small time crimes, he emerged into all this and then, within about three or four months transformed into this monster that we all heard about or found out about in 1969 after a series of murders had been committed here in Los Angeles that were just horrific. So I try to weave all these threads together in this book. And like you said, it's a deep dive and it took a hell of a long time. And uh, people read the book, they find out why, because it's a whole lot of information to try to parse and figure out what's important and what isn't, but that's kind of in a nutshell, I hope an answer to your question. It
1: was a great answer. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it is a great book. And, you know, I have ADD or whatever. It's like a man, you just find yourself just flying through this book. It keeps you, it, it captures your imagination, and Hooray. and it's a great read. And anybody, I'm telling you, if you love this show, it just fits right into exactly what you're looking into. And you know, again, I have my own beliefs about you know we see like end of World War II, we see uh, you know us uh, the CIA make big changes. Uh, we see, you know, a lot of stuff going on with Nazis being brought over here. We have a change of uh, from the OSS to the CIA and what that involves and the mind games that they brought, uh, brainwashing and all that stuff. And we start to see the growth of the CIA and it's kind of creating these uh, agent provocateurs, agents of chaos that cause problems that then the, 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 uh, the population manifests into asking to be saved from it. You cause a problem, you're the solution, and we see that happening a lot now. And now it almost happens all the time and people are like yeah i mean we see now with the governor in michigan uh, the fbi uh the 15 guys there 13 of them were or uh, uh agent provocateurs <laughs> with with yeah. the fbi catching and paying for flights hotels and food i mean like it's like there's a paper trail oh, and yeah. so but here it is that this is kind of the beginning of it and so we you know and and I want to get into the case. You know, we had uh we we had you know uh Giselle Maxwell trial and people just watching this prosecution almost throw the the fight uh where people were like oh, she's going to get off but she's so guilty. It was almost impossible to make that happen. But you know, the Charles Manson Uh, trial is kind of different and we're seeing pushing of narratives that uh, or the exclusion of evidence that would maybe paint a different picture and what that involves. So would you like to get into that, Tom? Yeah. I mean, I guess the easiest way to communicate that without losing your audience
0: is to tell how I kind of uh, got basically um, skeptical first uh, of what the historic narrative of, of this case was, of the Charles Manson case was, and how it kind of then exploded into these other areas. And again, so for people who are too young to know or aren't familiar with the Manson story, um, after Manson was released in 67 in San Francisco, he formed this harem of no, mostly no, young women. Sorry?
1: no sorry about that someone accidentally hit a bar go on sorry about that. okay yeah
0: so he, he he formed this kind of group of young women in 67 who within about three or four months had become completely brainwashed and submissive to him and they would follow him around always walking behind him they wouldn't speak unless he gave them permission to speak they washed him they had sex with him they did whatever he said the end of 67, early 68, they migrated from San Francisco down to Los Angeles and basically lived in a series of places where they were isolated and cut off from the rest of the world, most uh, prominently at a place called the Spawn Ranch, which was um, in deep in the valley, San Fernando Valley, about a 40 minute drive from downtown or from Los Angeles. And there the group kind of grew and grew to include some men that were about 30 or 40 people who by 1969, the summer of 69, uh, a bunch of them were dispatched by Manson to the home of Sharon Tate. They, the officially narrative is they didn't know who lived in Sharon Tate's house in, at the top of Beverly Hills. Uh, it was just chosen by Manson because it represented two things. It represented the Hollywood elite, which Manson felt had rejected him. He had wanted to be a musician. It also represented uh, the music industry and Terry Melcher, who was a record producer, who had known Manson and then not recorded him as he had promised. And again, that's the official version. Anyway, these five followers of Manson went up to the house on August 8th, 1969, around midnight and slaughtered Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, actress, wife of Roman Polanski, the film director who was in London at the time, scouting locations for a movie, and four house guests. And then the next night, similarly, savage murders took place of a, a couple in the crosstown in a neighborhood called Los Files, Leno and Rosemary Le Bonk, Le Bianca. And they were the murders were unsolved until um, December of that year. So about three, four months when the Manson family, who had been picked up In Death Valley, which is about six, seven hours from Los Angeles, where they had holed up in this remote kind of uh, mountaintop um, abandoned ranch called the Barker Ranch. And they were picked up then on uh, auto theft charges. But within a month or two, the police put together the fact that they had actually committed these horrific crimes. And that's the story I was assigned to do in 1999. Uh, which was going to be the 30th anniversary of of the case, I was asked by a a film magazine called Premiere that doesn't exist anymore to just find, you know, write a story about the 30th anniversary, what kind of impact it had on our culture, on Hollywood. I mean, it changed a lot of stuff, these murders in 1969. A lot of people called it the end of the 60s, um, kind of the signal that all of a sudden taught the world that, Hippies and drugs and free sex and communal living and stuff might not be some kind of nirvanic peaceful life, but actually could be very dangerous and uh, destructive. So when I started looking into this case for what was supposed to be a three month magazine assignment, I discovered that there were secrets and, and, and hidden truths that had never been exposed. And the reason I found it out and nobody else did for 30 years is I got access to people. It took a lot of work and a lot of time, critical witnesses who had testified for the prosecution. And all of a sudden, the whole official narrative started crumbling. And I discovered that a lot of what had been told or testified to at trial and then published by the prosecutor, a man named Vince Bugliosi, later in a book called Helter Skelter, which to this day is the best selling true crime book of all time, was basically a lie, a sensationalized story. The people who killed the victims were guilty and should have gone to prison for that. But what wasn't known was that they they were manipulated, provoked, and uh, that Manson had kind of been used by these agencies. I actually should stop here and say I don't prove this definitively. It's a circumstantial case, but I think the evidence is overwhelming that it's what happened, that in the end, All of this was done by design to do exactly what the murders accomplished, which was terrify the populace of hippies, you know, uh, people that look like flower girls and hippie boys. They were actually boogie people and dangerous and uncontrollable. And if you look into the history of COINTELPRO for the FBI and chaos, uh, for the cia which there's actually not a lot of records Every, it was both of them were illegal operations and all the records were destroyed but the agencies had to admit to some of it and some of the stuff has come out i'm hoping my book is going to bring out more information um because i've uh, among what i found out opens doors to a lot of other crimes and cases i don't know about now i, I really stopped in the early 70s but it looks like a lot of stuff that we thought happened say more innocently or less uh with without any kind of connection to government agencies might not have happened that way
3: uh one that's known that's pretty known is that the grateful dead was given a lsd throughout the whole tour Every, well, Everyone, they
1: were the uh cia's the guy who made the cia's asset was basically elsley elsley he was out uh, they were the house band yeah. they were his house band yeah yeah and
0: you uh, know i don't really go into that in my book um but it is something that uh uh, i'm considering doing a follow-up and i've gotten a lot more information about what was happening with the dead and the hate and 66 67 and um the fact that they were being monitored at the time and it was at their first concerts you know their bns and and whatnot um at the, the fillmore and and in yeah. the mm-hmm. park there that the, you know, the CIA was actually the ones who were distributing the LSD yeah. to the kids yes.
1: All right, guys, I want to tell you about our new friends at Joy Mode. That's right, Joy Mode. Got Johnny, how many times have you been at the gas station and looked at some horrible brand of erection pills, which has an animal and then some number next to it, right? So Pretty like, much every
2: time I'm at a gas station with you. Yeah, I'm yeah, looking right it, at them. Yeah.
1: Gorilla 5000. I don't even know what the 5000 means. What does it mean? I don't know. Well, guess what? Joy Mode is here to save the day. Whether you're happy or unhappy with your performance in the bedroom, why not perform even better? Joy Mode sexual performance booster is like a pre-workout for but for sex, okay? Joy Mode makes natural and science-backed sex wellness products for men. Their sexual performance booster is like a pre-workout but for sex. Come on! The sex performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness, dude. Rock hard boners and get that sex driver going. Want to spice things up in the bedroom, boost your sexual performance and do it naturally without nasty prescription drugs? We have a special offer for the tinfoil hat swarm, okay? Go to usejoymode.com slash tinfoil or enter tinfoil at checkout for 20% off your first order. Okay. That's U S E J O Y M O D E dot com slash tinfoil. Okay. That's use dot com slash tinfoil for twenty percent off your first oil. Thanks, Joy Mode. Hope you guys get in the mode of joy by jo- by using joy mode. Enjoy. My whole theory is like I get very nervous when anything is labeled culture hippie culture black culture these things to me tend to be, there's tends to be a hidden hand feminist culture that seems to have a hidden hand to drive uh, a certain segment of the population yeah. a certain way you know first you yeah. had everybody moving into drugs and what drugs and what acid it does to your brain and all that stuff and then we have Everybody's starting to get to anti-war with what's going on in Vietnam and they can't have that. So now if you demonize the, uh, the hippie, the hippie culture. culture, now people are less likely to engage in that, and I, I also believe this is around the time, uh, I know that the Vietnam War ended around 75, right, but you know, you see later on, you see the movement to take money out of school systems and to corrupt the public school system, because I also believe people were getting too smart. The population was starting to understand what was going on, and they were getting very nervous about that, so they bombarded all these different segments of society with drugs. Um, the DA, There was a, I, where do you want to get into? Because I really want to talk about uh, the manipulation of Manson and what Hay-Ashbury, Hay-Ashbury represented. Because as I was reading your book, Tom, I was like, oh, they turned Hay-Ashbury into a free-range psych ward. Uh, it was, it was basically a giant laboratory in which they were, they allowed these, these, I hate to call people lab rats, but just for the sake of the conversation, these lab rats to move freely and they were able to monitor them through these free clinics and they were able to see what was going on and all that. Would you like to get into that? Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, central to what was going on in the hate, uh, in 1967, um, that was 67 was called the summer of love by the media. And uh, it was the summer that uh, uh, I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of kids kind of uh, migrated to the hate to be a part of this new scene, this new peace and love and anti-war scene. And prior to that, in 65, 66, these young doctors, internists in, in, in the hate were experimenting with um, drugs and their uh, impact on people who lived in group situations and close situations using rights, rats and mice, injecting them with um, uh, amphetamines and then giving them LSD to see how the ba- behavior could be controlled. These young doctors then, I shouldn't say young, like late 20s, early 30s, anticipated this kind of invasion of youth in 1967 and at june 6 1967 right when the kids start coming in to, to the hate, they opened up something called the Hate ashbury free medical clinic which was a free clinic that they knew was going to be needed to treat these kids for yeah. you know drug related injuries overdoses also since the kids were coming with one-way bus tickets or, or hitchhiking there are not Planning to leave, they knew that they had. We're going to be treating them for STDs and all kinds of things. And it was free. It was the first free clinic. Still in the there. Country. Still there. It actually, wow. it, they actually closed the month after my book came oh, out in twenty nineteen. Yeah, man, oh, man, man. Yeah,
1: man. yeah.
0: Um, so uh, in that summer of sixty seven, when the clinic opened, uh, they announced that you know they were it was being run entirely on donations. And um, money that came you know through public health stuff, but they were the founder David Smith said he was not going to be doing any research, not reporting any results to to the government. He was just doing this to help the kids. As it turned out, what I found out and a few other people before me, all of the all of the stuff they were doing was actually at the behest of the government. It was research wow. into the drugs. They were keeping track, they were getting secret funding. They also gave an office to a psychiatrist who's pretty prominent in my book named Lewis West Jolly West. And he went there to recruit subjects for his LSD experiments. And at the time, uh, he was just considered kind of this benevolent academic psychiatrist. He was from the University of Oklahoma, where he ran their neuroscience uh, department. And he had taken a sabbatical for one year to go to the Hague. Again, how these people knew this was going to happen a year before it happened is always something that's kind of uh,
1: yeah, it's it's super interesting, right? But it's it's real easy to
3: get patients. Yo, free LSD at that time. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, the the, the clinic
1: was the clinic
0: wasn't giving out the LSD. They were just kind of uh, well, they weren't supposed to be. Yeah,
1: right. Totally, one hundred percent. And it's like Johnny said on a couple podcasts. There's no biological shortcuts right there's no right there's no free rides and uh there's no i mean if we take a look at just your phone your gmail right oh here here's a free email oh what are they doing they're collecting your data okay nothing's nothing's
2: free you're you're the product yeah when it's free you know
1: like what happened at this clinic
2: was
0: uh there was another smith there named roger smith who's not related to david smith roger smith was getting his phd in criminology at uh, berkeley's school of criminology and he was also working as a federal parole officer so manson got released in los angeles in march of 67 and he was um oh i didn't lose you did i no we're still here we're still here Here. here. okay Okay.
1: we're just Just listening believe it or not that happens once in a while on this show (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Stop me if I. If I no, no. You're killing it. We love yeah. it. We love it. We love so, it. So
0: Roger Smith was working also as a federal parole officer. Manson is released in March of '67 to Los Angeles, and immediately the same day violates his patrol parole by just moving up to the Bay Area and announcing himself at, at their offices. Now I was able through Freedom of Information Act requests to get what the Bureau of Prisons w- was willing to release to me from Manson's parole record, and nobody had ever gotten it before. I got this in the early 2000s. And there's a description of this guy who's not supposed to be in this district, and they want to violate him. The supervisor in uh, San Francisco at the office says, you know, he's clearly he's not ready to be amongst us because he's still violating the basic tenants, the, the rules of his parole. He needs to be sent back to prison. And the federal government said, no, no, we'll just reassign him to a man named Roger Smith who's working in the Hague. So Manson becomes Roger Smith's parole uh, client. Roger Smith is also doing drug research, and he has an office at the Hague Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. Yeah, Yeah. Ah, dude. (laughs) And the next thing you know, Manson is being told by Smith to come for his once a week appointments to the clinic. Uh, where they have to have their one-on-one you know, meetings to find out if Manson's following his parole regulations, which he's not. Manson's getting arrested, and Roger Smith is not violating him. He's allowing him to stay. And that's, again, that's it was during that kind of combustible two or three months of that summer that Manson emerged from the hate with long hair, this kind of hippie speak, and this group of girls, mostly girls then, Who would do anything he said including kill strangers for him all within a few months he had achieved that um talent to do something that the cia's mk Ultra program had started trying to accomplish in 1952 and had never been able to do and when the program was ended in 1972 or three i should say if it was ended that's when the official story was the plug was Pulled on it. Uh, They said they never actually accomplished anything. I I think that's wrong. I think they accomplished a lot and just never shared it with us.
1: I completely agree with you. And, you know, if we just take a look of, like, throughout time... Uh, since then we've seen you know lone gunmen then we find out there's like all these you know files on him they've been tracking him mm-hmm. they never they never did anything mm-hmm. about it they actually helped them get out of situations because that is you know there's all the stories about the 911 hijackers where they were yeah. tipped off early stuff like yeah. that if that's even a, a real narrative but so you so what we see here is like well you know with our phones and all that stuff we we have the collection of data they can figure out who's who's vulnerable who's this exactly. so you're running this clinic you you have this kid who is institutionalized right he comes from a really hard hard background he experiences sexual assault very early in in the children's uh, um uh, yeah institutions where they had him he starts sexually assaulting both boys and probably girls at that point so they see that this guy is a nutshell a nut job right now at a very early age and it really sucks because we all come into this world uh with love in our heart and, and v- variables around us tend to harden and harden and harden us and make us start to treat people as we have been treated. We think that's what happens when you get the power, you start treating people poorly and he's doing that. And on top of that, he has some kind of, either delusions of grandeur of being a musician or actually some kind of talent enough to be hanging out with these people. Now you can manipulate these people. Now you, he's charming. He can work women. We've seen this happen before. We're young. Good look. I mean, Charles Manson before the chaos, good looking guy you know, talking a sweet game with girls who are just around for the free love and wanting to hang out with a guy who's playing and you just see him getting in trouble, getting in trouble, getting in trouble, and then being released out of prison. This becomes uh, somewhat of a, I would say, a trend that's very concerning. It's it's kind of meaning that they're watching him enough to know exactly when he's getting arrested and when exactly they could let him go and why are they doing that? Kind of giving him this sense of like, Oh, they we nobody can touch me. I go, I get arrested. I'm I go break to jail. I'm Superman, you don't think that's happening yeah, now yeah. with the school I mean, shooters? One hundred. I'm sorry. Uh, go on. Sorry, yeah, he was ahead. talking about that. This is. Do we see these with these shooters now? That one hundred percent. They're put in these kind of programs. We see them. They in can these. see their social media when
3: they're thinking crazy thoughts. I need an AR, and they're like, "Oh, perfect. Oh, perfect. We're going to use this yeah, kid, yeah. and then you All pick them
1: off, collecting data."
0: Yeah, I don't know anything about anything post, like, 1973 or 4. <laughs> Everybody asks me if I think all this stuff that happens today or in the last 10, 15 years with the shootings. I said, look, that's not my wheelhouse. I mean, it might seem like it, but I'm just trying to stay grounded in everything at the origins of these programs that I can actually get information on. At some point, I might look into the possibility that these other events that happened, almost on a weekly basis now, could be a part of it. Nothing nothing surprises me anymore, I'll say that.
1: So, yeah. Now, Johnny Jolly West, right? Yeah. Um, Charles Manson wasn't his only uh, high-profile client, am I correct? I, I believe he had many, many other very high-profile clients.
0: Yeah, he was kind of like a Zelig character. He would just show up. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the, the first time he became kind of globally... Uh, Famous was not, was never for like his work. What happened was we had an assassination of a president, John F. Kennedy. And um, as people probably know, um, three days after Oswald was arrested and charged um, by the Dallas police department with the assassination, he himself was killed in the basement of the Dallas police department when he was being transferred from there to another facility by a guy named Jack Ruby, and Jack Ruby was a local strip club owner in in um, Dallas who had ties to the mob. And I mean, they were uh, he, he just seemed like a small time hood uh, at the time that he shot Oswald. I think it was the first live murder on television, Whoa. unless you count Kennedy. But the, the only film of Kennedy getting killed was as a Bruder film. And that didn't come out till later. But there were literally all these cameras in the basement of the. Dallas PD, and they, they're showing Oswald walking out or being let out in handcuffs, and Ruby walks right up and shoots him in the stomach and kills him. When Ruby was tackled by the police, the first thing he said is, I'm Jack Ruby. Why am I here? Why are you arresting me? He was taken oh in and claimed to be amnesic of, of this, this act. Uh, long story short, he was held and tried, I think within about six or seven months, and convicted of, of murder. And he never took the stand. He never he told one story to a paper, um, which is a whole other. I don't want to get into that because it would take too long. But the person who extracted the story from him, I found out, was a CIA guy. But anyway, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, Larry Schiller. But uh, in that story, he said he was killing... Oswald to spare Jackie Kennedy from having to come to a trial in Dallas and testify against, um, against Oswald if he were alive. His own lawyer admitted later that he had told uh, Ruby to say that in this interview and he had made it up. So Ruby's in prison in 1964 and he's about to get, he's waiting for a new trial because you always get an appeal and they were gonna make an appeal, and he also was gonna testify to the Warren Commission, the group that was assembled to try to find out whether Oswald really did act alone or whether there was a conspiracy. Um, And uh, right before Ruby was set to testify to the commission and say under oath why he did what he did, his new lawyer, a guy named Winston Smith, uh, asked Jolly West to come from Oklahoma and examine Ruby and you know, do a mental evaluation to see if he was psychiatrically sound, which he had been found to be sound for his first trial. So, um, Wes comes in to see him in Dallas, and uh, it was, I can't remember it was October of 64. He's with him alone in his jail cell for about two hours. He comes out of his jail cell, holds a press conference and says, announces that sometime in the preceding 48 hours, Jack Ruby has had a psychotic break with reality from which he might not ever recover. And he says, among other things, he has auditory and visual hallucinations. He, he saw people in the room that he was terrified of that weren't in the room. He was hiding under a table. He told me that he could hear the screams of Jewish people being boiled alive outside outside oh, his jail cell at night. And Wes um, predicted that, Ruby might never recover from this basically nervous breakdown he'd had. Now, what nobody knew then was that West was secretly contracted by the CIA's MKUltra program to do, among other things, induce insanity in a person without their awareness. And West had announced to the CIA in 1955 that he had accomplished that using drugs, that he could um, make somebody mentally ill like in a laboratory setting or in a private setting. So what I found out when I was doing this work, five years in, when I realized that West was a part of the Hate Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and what was going on there, I looked into the allegations that had come out in 77 when MKUltra was exposed by, by first reporters at the New York Times, Seymour Hersh, and later in these congressional hearings, West was one of about a dozen academics who have been identified as cia contracted nk ultra agents who were giving drugs to people without their knowledge to try to create the programmed assassins seeing if they could induce amnesias, do all this kind of brainwashing crazy stuff west was on the front page of the new york times and, and charged in the papers being one of these agents he told the New York Times in 77, he had been approached to do it and turned them down. He said, he, I thought it was ridiculous. I, I've never done anything like that. So Wes at that point was at UCLA where he ran the psychiatry um, department there and their neuroscience Institute. And until he died, I think in 98 or 99, he died the same year I got this assignment, 99. Every time somebody accused him of being part of the CIA program or MK Ultra. He would vehemently deny it and threaten to sue them after he died. And when I stumbled upon his kind of fringe role in the Manson um, life, the life of Manson in 67 and the hate, I went to UCLA where he'd been the last 25 years of his career to see whether or not he donated his papers, which often happens with someone like him. And they told me he had, and they were there, they hadn't been processed yet, meaning they have to go through them and make sure there's nothing in there that violates, especially with doctors, uh, patient confidentialities. So it took months, but they started releasing a box at a time, a box at a time, and I started going to the library, to the special collections department and going through the files. And you know, they've got cameras on you, there's only 12 people in the room, there's a monitor, because you never know what can be in these archives that people will steal. Again, long story short, I know this has been too long. No, it's um, great. I mean, mean, we're listening, dude. I mean. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. I just felt like, and again, it was complete intuition, that there was something in there that was going to show that West had, in fact, been a part of this program, even though nobody ever was able to charge. I mean, he, he, he was never even investigated for it. Once he said no, nobody followed up and said, well, wait a minute, you were you know, with Jack Ruby the day he went crazy, et cetera. Well, I found documents, first a few, and then about, I think, 30 or 40 altogether. And it was correspondence between Jolly West beginning in 1953 and Sherman Grifford, who was the was the head of the NCI Ultra experimental program. His real name was Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. He used Sherman Grifford as a cover name. and. There were letters between West and 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 Gottlieb that began in '53 and went all the way through the end of the '50s that uh, basically described the exact kind of illegal experiments that the CIA later admitted to, but there was no actual paper record because they destroyed everything. These were the most intact records of, expe- of MK Ultra experiments, and as one researcher, actually the guy who blew the whistle on MK Ultra, that took took the information to seymour Hersh in 75 or six uh, and then wrote the first book about mk ultra john Marks. when i showed him these letters he said number one if i had these letters when i wrote my book my book would have been entirely different uh, because we didn't have any documents and number two he said of the documents we had they were just financial and with redactions he goes this is like a blueprint for the entire program and these are definitely authentic. Everything in here is what they were doing. So I found out that West had, in fact, lied to the press all those years and uh, that there was a paper trail showing that he was doing exactly what the CIA was trying to do. And in close proximity to Jack Ruby, when Jack Ruby lost his sense of reality, Jack Ruby did testify to the Warren Commission about three or four months after West had probably given him LSD in a combination with another drug. And they had to stop his testimony because he was rambling incoherent and, uh, they never used it. And then he died mysteriously a year later of a quick acting cancer. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of, that's all in the book and it might sound less um, crazy if you read it. You no, know,
1: dude, I, I did dude, this show. This is par for the course. I mean, I, I'm just okay. enjoying listening to everything you're saying. So, where this is awesome, man. I've been obviously wanting to interview you for a a long time because this really fits into, you know, a lot of stuff we talk about on this show right now. And it's just like the the controlling of controlled opposition. You know, I mean they get this ranch. Things are going on out there all the time. LAPD won't investigate. LAPD won't arrest them. People are talking about people going missing, cars getting stolen, all this stuff. Nothing's happening. It's almost like they're trying to create a power keg that can explode mm-hmm. when they want to pull the trigger. Now, uh, Charles Manson starts like kind of making some headway into some of the big players in, in the music at that time, I believe um, someone from the Eagles, am I correct? He was like meeting some people from the Eagles and was... No, 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 the, uh, the Beach Boys. The Dennis Beach Wilson. Boys, there we go. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And Neil Young actually publicly
0: has admitted not only <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, being right. impressed by Manson's music when he met him in 68 and 69, but he even tried to get him an, an audition with, uh, I think it was Mo Austin at Universal Records. Um and to this day, in his memoir, Neil Young wrote that he was not a bad musician.
1: Uh, well, uh, real quick, before we get into what happened in Los Angeles, I also wanted to talk about the uh, introduction of crystal meth into Hey Ashbury and how speed was starting to become a really big thing. In that area, so you had, you know, we 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 had uh, acid and MK Ultra going on. They had a something called Operation uh, Midnight Climax. Uh, mm-hmm. Prostitutes would be bringing back uh, men, in particular, what was thought to be possible double agents of intelligence, and they were dousing them with acid and trying to see if they could get them to talk. And that was a big thing, and that's along the lines of giving these yeah. people drugs, and we see that a lot. With the medical mafia, intelligence service, uh, medical procedures, acid would be one of those being done to people without their permission and not without them knowing that they're participating in an experiment. And that was a big part of Haight-Ashbury. You saw crystal meth coming in and you mm. saw acid in this combination. Oh, that's the worst. Of kind of come together where people would be up for days. Now you're hitting them with psychedelics and what can they control that? Can they break down their psychs psychology? Their psych, their, their psyche Fair. to get them to do, uh, whatever they want them to do.
0: Yeah. Well, it was interesting because, and, and I get into this a little in the book, but not as much as I want it. Cause it's really, really technical and scientific. And if I do the second book, which I think I will, I'm going to go a lot more into it, but, um, David Smith, the person who ran the clinic, and these other uh, kind of peripheral scientists that were coming up there and supposedly administering healthcare for months at a time during the two or three, first two or three years, but were actually just doing research. They were trying to learn how to, among the most important research they were doing starting in 66, 67, was to learn why some people reacted to uh, LSD differently than others. And I have these papers that they had done. Some of them were published in obscure journals where they literally say, we're trying to understand why two people will be given the same amount of LSD in the same setting. And one person will have a complete um, personality, radical personality change, and the other won't. And was it because of pre, uh, what do they call it, Uh, pre-existing conditions in their in their psyche, or was it something uh, environmental? And they did all this research in the hate on these kids to find out exactly how you could find the ones who would have a radical personality change. So in other words, take one trip of LSD and be permanently altered to become kind of like someone who believes in visions and seeing Christ or the devil. And that's exactly what Manson did with his followers. Some of them he would try to manipulate and and try to give drugs to, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't succumb. Others did. And this was exactly what the CIA was doing through these doctors and Man- Manson had mastered it. And, um, David Smith had written a paper called, um, uh, what called uh, What was it called? The psychedelic, psychedelic, uh, I can't remember what it was. I have it. Um, it's been too long since I did it. Psych- psychedelic syndrome. And he believed that there was a pre-existing factor in a person's brain chemistry and that you could determine through um, tests with LSD and other drugs, whether you could trigger that to change a person. And Bugliosi, this is what's so kind of fascinating, is so Bugliosi, the prosecutor, gets the five Manson defendants convicted of murder. Um, They don't put up a defense. They don't testify during their trial. But after they're convicted, they have what they call the uh, death penalty phase where um, the jury comes back. The defendants are brought back. And you hear testimony to decide whether or not they should get um, executed, which was legal in California at the time. It isn't anymore. So for like two or three months, they had psychiatrists coming on the stand who would examine Manson family members, testifying about whether or not they thought that they had killed these people of their own volition or whether they were manipulated by Manson, basically brainwashed. And the prosecution said that they were brainwashed by Manson, that he had somehow developed this technique to get people to do whatever he wanted to do. And the proof is in the pudding. Look, they all did it and they're not denying. They, they all admitted they did it during the death penalty phase. But what Bugliosi had to also prove to get them the death penalty was that as he wrote in his book and said in his closing argument, somewhere deep within the, the deepest recesses of their mind, there was a precipitating factor that all it had to do was to be triggered and they would kill independent of anything else. They had it in them. They just weren't aware of it. And that Manson had figured out how to do it. And it's almost like Bugliosi was reading from these scientific papers that were done by scientists who were actually trying to create people who trying to you know, find them and then experiment with them and see how far they could go. That's what the MK Ultra program was doing uh, that year. So,
2: can I can I ask okay. a question real quick, uh, Tom? Uh, why wasn't this is th- something that's always confused me? Because uh, Charles Manson seems like such a strong-willed person, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Why wasn't he ever more of a source for the things that happened to him? You know what I mean? Why was he just happy with, with kind of how how his state? You know, in prison. and This it, is this is theoretical
0: on my part and other people who've kind of studied Manson. There were a few things. So when he was released from prison in 1967 in, in, in Los Angeles, he begged the prison, his keepers, to keep him behind bars. He said, this is my home. This is all I've known. I don't want to go out there. He refused to sign his release papers. And then, like I said, everything he did for the next two years seem like he was trying to be sent back and they wouldn't send him back. Um, There's a couple theories. Number one, he wanted to be famous and wanted to be the monster that everybody got to know more than anything in the world, that he loved that fame and he wanted to be back in prison. I'm not so sure. You know, again, this is where I can only speculate, but I think that, you know, other people say, why did he never say that he'd been manipulated? Well, the most important tenant of Manson's life, and he did say this in interviews and books, was I'm not a rat, I'm not a snitch. He would never tell. I also don't think he didn't want people to think he had the power to do this. What I don't know and what I only can theorize about is was he taught by these same doctors how to do what he did to his women or was he a part of it too? Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing that Wes said that was one of the most important letters he wrote to Sidney Gottlieb from 54 was that, and this was only like two years of doing this research for the CIA, he he reported to Gottlieb that through the combination of hypnosis uh, and the administration of LSD and other drugs, he had learned how to remove true memories from a person and replace them with false memories-
1: Oh my God. Without that
0: person- That's incredible. Ever being aware of it, and that the false memories would be stuck and permanent forever. Think and power. I mean, if you have that kind of a power over a person without their knowledge, you can do almost anything. It's like being God. Amazing.
2: I have one other question. It seems a, a this would certainly help you with your next book. Uh, and it's a piece of evidence. I know a lot of us who follow this have been waiting on for a long time. The Tex Watson tapes, his interviews with his attorney. What, what is yeah. that? Ever, are we ever going to hear those? I, I, I
0: don't know. I, I tried so hard to get those. T- I mean, I'm the one that discovered that they were in a vault in, in Dallas in watson's old attorney's uh archive i mean he, he so th- to those who don't know tex watson was the one who really was kind of like manson's right hand and committed the most horrible violence at each of the murder scenes so he was the one that stabbed eight and a half month old sharon uh, tate to death while she was begging for the life of her child oh
1: my God. Uh,
0: He he inflicted stab wounds. You know, there were dozens and dozens on each victim. It was him and the girls, but he was the one who was kind of calling the shots. Um, He had left the Manson group uh, right before they all got rounded up and arrested in Death Valley, went home to Dallas and was living back at his parents. And when he had left Texas in 67, he had left college. He was a a a scholar athlete star of the football team really clean cut uh yes ma'am no ma'am and then he transformed once he met manson and became a follower so he was back in texas and once the lapd had kind of figured out who committed the murders and they were about to round everybody up they found out that watson was back at his parents house in dallas and they called um, watson's uncle who was the sheriff of their little town And said, We want to send a couple of detectives down to interview Charles. His name was Charles, Charles Watson. Uh, And the sheriff said, About what? And they said, We can't tell you, but can you please detain him? Um, Otherwise, we'll bring a warrant. He said, No, no, I'll just bring him into the station. I'm sure Charles didn't do anything bad. So the detectives went down, went to the station, and Watson was brought in with his parents. And uh, he was questioned, and he had a lawyer. The parents called Bill Boyd this lawyer and asked him to be present. So the detectives basically asked Watson if he had been involved in the murder of Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas. And he said, he didn't know, he said, I barely, I think I read about that in the paper, but no, of course not. And then the detectives said, well, uh, we need you to really think about this because there's some I- implicating evidence that you were. And then Bill Boyd, the attorney, his, his attorney took him aside or took the detectives aside and said, leave me alone with him and uh, I want to talk to him so that everyone left the room and Boyd said, I'm going to leave you here for like an hour. Think about this and then decide what you want to do. But if you did it and they have the evidence, it's better now to admit it. So um, they left Watson alone for an hour. And at the end of the hour, Watson said, I killed that woman. I killed Sharon Tate. So he was put under arrest and, you know, they couldn't just take him to Texas. They still had to get a transfer order state to state. So they left him. And then Bill Boyd immediately started audio taping Watson. And Watson, for what Bill Boyd later told me when I interviewed him for 20 hours, described everything, what happened when he got to Los Angeles, how he met Manson, what Manson did to get his followers to do what they did. And then everything about the the two nights of murder, you know, who did what, who was where, all that. And I interviewed Bill Boyd in 2000, I think, eight. And during this phone interview, he said, you know, I have these tapes that nobody's ever heard, and they're in my vault here in my office. Damn. And he goes, you know, he even talked about other murders that the police had never discovered. And I said, You mean unsolved murders? He goes, Yeah, murders that are unsolved to this day that they all did. Amazing. And you don't say that to a reporter or anyone yeah. if you're that person <laughs> even if you're his lawyer, you know, forty years before. There's still something called attorney prying and privilege, and yeah. that's a complete violation of it. So I said, Mr. Boyd, are you saying that there those tapes could lead me to, because it had always been suspected that the Manson family killed other people. Buliosi actually, in his book, said he thought they may have killed as many as 33. They were convicted for killing nine. Um, but Buliosi thought the number was a minimum of 33. So once Bill Boyd realized what he had done that he shouldn't have done, well, he immediately backpedaled and said, well, actually, I didn't say that Charles committed those murders. Charles just had information about them. He knew that Manson and who else in the family did it. I said, well, I'd love to hear the tapes. And I knew it was never going to happen. Yeah. Very long story short, uh, he wouldn't let me. And then he died about a year or two later. Uh, He was on a treadmill and had a heart attack or stroke. I didn't know he died, but I found out later in about 2015, when I was going to go back to him and see if he had changed his mind, I found out he had died three or four years before. So then I called his law firm and I found out the law firm had been dissolved upon his death and gone into bankruptcy. And those audio tapes were in the custody with all of his files of a bankruptcy, um, a trustee for a bankruptcy court. So for two years, I fought with her to try to get the tapes. I ended up sharing information with the deputy DA down here in Los Angeles who was in charge of all the Manson parole hearings. And he was kind of advising me on what I could do to get the tapes. And when I told the trustee that I had his ear, she said, well, would he talk to me? Maybe he could persuade me. And I said, yeah, yeah, he'll talk to you. Next thing you know, behind my back, the deputy D.A. got the tapes from the trustee. Oh, oh shit. God. And the promise was that I was going to get to listen to them first with him. But as soon as I heard them, they said, this journalist can't hear what's on these tapes. Amazing. So that was like 2014, 15. And then I began this crusade to try to get the tapes. I went public, wrote an article. And Leslie Van Houten, who's one of the killer's attorneys, um, who's in prison, his name's Rich Pfeiffer. Since he found out about the tapes for the first article I wrote, he's been going to court again and again and again, saying he believes there's exculpatory information on the tapes and his client should have access. Now, these tapes are more than 50 years old. It's the only piece of evidence, to our knowledge, that the LAPD has that they've never released, never made public. and he's gone all the way to the Supreme court, Pfeiffer, the state Supreme court, trying to get the tapes and he gets turned down again and again and again. It's been like six years and he's still not stopping. Is he ever going to prevail? I don't know. I was hoping when my book came out that there'd be public pressure uh, on them to release the tapes. But no, as far as we know, they're still in a vault at the LAPD's office. And I believe they are the most accurate account of what happened because Watson gave this account to his attorney before any of them were in the newspapers, before the public knew that these people were suspects. And the first recorded account of what happened on a tape happened about two weeks later when Susan Atkins gave her version of what happened to her attorneys. But for people who read my book, you'll find out the attorneys were illegally planted by the prosecution on her defense to um, basically uh, coerce her involvement as a prosecution witness and write a script for her of, of what to say. That's so wild. I believe these tapes could upend the convictions because I believe they have all the crazy shit I'm talking about here, I believe, is on those tapes, and that's why the LAPD won't release them.
1: Isn't it super tragic that, you know, covering your own ass is more important than the truth? It's just so point, sad yeah. to me. You see it happen with making of a murderer on it's so obvious what happened with that case. And yeah. this and the Wisconsin Supreme Court is never gonna let that guy out because well, if they, they also do gotta give him money. Well, yeah, because he's gonna own that city. Yeah, it's basically there's, his there's the, the the convict him twice on stuff where there was no evidence, you're just going to hand them the city over. And it just really sucks. And even like 50 years later, when this stuff is like most of the people are long gone and uh, the killers are still, a couple of them are still alive, but they're so frail and I know one-ass cancer. And it's just like not saying that they didn't do it, but just like what actually happened and were they corralled? Were weak people corralled into committing crimes that you know that normally they wouldn't have done on their own and yeah. there, i know i i'm sure you got to go in a few but i wanted to uh ask you uh the timelines of the murders i remember reading your book and that they didn't m- match up and and that sure. witnesses didn't uh oh, yeah, corroborate so the story
0: there's so much contradictory information out there and again you know this was the trial was in 1970 to 71 there was no internet. More importantly, most importantly, Watergate didn't happen until 73, 74. And I think the public was just so much less cynical or skeptical and didn't. I mean, I couldn't believe the journalists weren't looking into this at the time. But, you know, once Watergate happened, then all of a sudden people uh, suspected the government of much more nefarious stuff. And then after Watergate, was when the disclosures about COINTELPRO chaos and COINTELPRO and uh, MKUltra all came out from like 74 to 77. And there were about a half dozen different congressional hearings. And then we learned that the government had really been committing crimes against the population at the behest of the director of the CIA, of Richard Nixon, of J. Edgar Hoover, Ronald Reagan when he was governor of of California here, when the whole Manson thing happened. Uh, there was like this kind of cabal of right-wing guys oh, who were pulling snap. the strings.
1: I didn't even think Reagan was governor during this whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Damn. That is crazy, dude. I didn't mm-hmm. even realize that. That is yeah. so nuts to me, man.
0: And Evel Younger, Evel Younger, who was the main DA of Los Angeles, who basically, you know, he picked OC to to uh, prosecute the trial. He was an ex-OSS man who had gone from the OSS, which, you know, evolved into the CIA, into the FBI. I mean, he was a spook for 20 years before he went to law school and became a DA. And he was part of uh, Nixon, President Nixon's Law and Order um, uh, what do you call it? Office, where he was one of Nixon's advisors on Law and Order. I mean, these guys were really, really into it up to their ears as far as Punishing and uh, you know and stopping what they believed, and they genuinely believed in 1968, 69, that this left-wing group of of the youth was going to have. There was going to be a revolution. They also believed it was funded by um, the Chinese and the Russians, as people believe you know now about the Russians, but uh, back then (laughs) that everything was getting funded and played. By them, so they believed it was their patriotic duty to do whatever they could to wow. squash the left, left wing movement.
1: And uh, but, uh, there's a couple witnesses. I know there was a gentleman who happened to be gay that said one thing, and then later on, as you tried to follow up, he pushed back, didn't want to talk to you, uh, and didn't want to speak on the matter uh were there a lot of witnesses like that that talked and yeah maybe absolutely. were mob there were involved
0: there were also cops who worked the case who gave me information and then when they saw where it took me and i came back to them for more they kind of freaked out and panicked uh, at least four that i can think of right off the top of my head who were so cooperative with me in the beginning and then told me not to call them anymore, to stay away, that I had gotten them in trouble. And these guys are already retired, but one of them I felt horrible about, Charlie Gunther. Um, He was um, one of the most revered sheriff's investigators. I mean, you know James Elroy, this great uh, crime novelist uh, who writes about Los Angeles crime, Black Dahlia, uh, all, all kinds of books, had written about Charlie and said, Charlie was the best cop, in the United States, the best detective. And when the sheriff Lee Baca of Los Angeles found out what Charlie Gunther had shared with me in around 2007 or eight or nine, he put out the word that Charlie's was done. And he was telling everybody that Charlie was mentally ill. Ironically, Lee Baca, you know where he is right now, he's sitting in prison. Um, He got caught up in a scandal in about 2012 or 2013 the sheriff's department, you know, runs the the security at the, they run the prisons here and his, uh, a bunch of his sheriffs were torturing and raping prisoners Oh my! God. and he, he covered it all up and lied under oath and he ended up getting convicted and sent to prison. This is about four years after he chased me out of his office at sheriff's headquarters when I was interviewing him and he was telling me I was full of shit and all that. And he was just as corrupt as the rest of the people I was asking him about.
1: So, was was there any time you felt your life was in danger in doing this investigation, even though it was decades later?
0: Yeah, not as much as most people kind of suspect. I honestly, a lot of people told me I should be scared, and I usually wasn't. I mean, I was interviewing a lot of old drug dealers the first year or two, and they were threatening me, and they were like eighty-year-old men. I'm like, "What are you gonna do?" But honestly, the person that I was most scared of until he died in 2016 was Vince Pagliosi. And it's in the book. I mean, he and I began on very friendly terms until I discovered what he didn't want me to discover. And then we came very adversarial. And and, uh, it got to the point where I had my last big sit down face to face interview with him in his house in Pasadena in 2006 And we were in the house at his kitchen table from, uh, I think it was like 11 in the morning until 7 at night. And he was screaming and cursing at me and turning off the recorder so he could go off the record. And he basically said, you know, he would hurt me like I'd never been hurt before. Uh, And I said, do you mean physically? Uh, He goes, well, you can figure that out on your own. Now, (laughs) Bugliosi, I I don't have time for it. What I found was even before he got this trial of the then century, you know, before the OJ trial, the Manson trial, was the biggest trial in the history of California. He had been compromised. He had, as crazy as it sounds, in 1966, his wife had their first baby, Vincent Jr., and Vince became convinced that the milkman was the father of the baby. So he started stalking the milkman and using the resources of the DA's office to follow and monitor the milkman. He was trying to prove that they were having an affair, and he called him a witness in a murder case. And long story again short was the milkman finally figured out who Bugliosi was and reported it to the DA's office and to his own attorneys. They were shocked, and rather than turning Bugliosi over to the police, they offered to pay the milkman to be quiet and just go away. And they told Bugliosi, the milkman wouldn't take the money. He just said, we want him to leave us alone. And that was 1968 when it was finally settled. Bugliosi should have, if not been arrested, he at least should have been disbarred. I mean, he was sending threatening letters. He picked up the little girl, their daughter from school, Took her to a toy store, bought, let her buy whatever she wanted, then left her at the house just to show them that they were not safe. My God. Instead, oh. they reward him. He was unknown then, really, in the DA's office with this massive trial. And that was, and this is my theory, because they could, Evel Younger, the OSS guy, could control him. So, Bugliosi, and I had two or three other things like that that he was involved in Jeez. through the years, where he threatened people and broke laws. I knew he was capable of anything. wanted to to hurt me so he was the only one that really scared me but when he died in 2016 i was devastated because i really wanted him to be alive when the book came out i really wanted him (laughs) to answer you know to all the charges i was bringing up
1: did any of his family hit you back uh saying that it was lies or anything like that well when the book came out uh in, in june of 2019
0: for about three or four months, I was getting threats from one person and they claimed that they were in the Bugliosi family. And I, I believe they may have been. Uh, I don't know if it was a guy or a girl, but based on the threats, I decided it had to be a teenager because they were just so immature. You no, know, I'm standing outside your window. I'm watching you right now. I'm sure. going to kill you. How could you do this to Vance? and i just saved everything and you know i never wanted to call the police i just thought it was stupid but um i never found out who it was they finally stopped like the following fall and his kids never heard from them his wife gail who i you know knew a lot because i was going over i've been to the house and met her she was the one that the publisher was you know because they said they said to me you know don't think we're not going to get sued even though he's dead because what's valuable to the bulioses is Helter Skelter and my book, his book and my book takes it apart. So they say, Gail Buliosi, Vince's widow could sue us um, for, you know, basically she could claim everything I did was a lie and it's not true. So they could still sue us, but she never, never did. Nobody, we didn't get a single lawsuit filed. And there are lots of people in my book, the doctors at the clinic, certain cops that are, were also alive when the book came out, but nobody's followed a suit yet. Knock on wood.
1: Let's hope it doesn't happen because it's a great book. And, uh, you know, if you take parts of it, and I know you're not paying attention to a lot of stuff going on today, but you can see this
2: everywhere. Man. Yeah, I love these people that that can read a book like this and not project it into modern times. You know what I mean? They, it's they just can't unbelievable. make that
1: believable. It's unbelievable how people just are like goldfish and that nothing that in the past matters. Everything's just whatever's right in front of them is the only thing that's happening, and you know it just sucks, man. Because we definitely have a system of. You know, whether it's the crack being brought in by our intelligence services to flood our our ghettos and cause crime to accelerate to the hippie movement being demonized by this stuff with LSD and acid. It's just there's been an invisible hand that's caused a lot of chaos. And I think people are waking up to it more and more. But a lot of damage is done and a lot of lives have been affected And, you know, we've had to go through the, you know, the drug wars. I mean, this probably was a giant part of starting to crank up the drug war because we got to stop the war on drugs because of crime. And you're like, you know, I mean, like if you want to stop the drug war, stop supplying the drugs. That seems to be (laughs) it and they're not
3: doing it so or fucking giving them fucking LSD and fucking tweak at the same time
1: yeah I mean like that's yeah. that's giving them the drugs but I want to say that's... Tom you can give them LSD uh, though but not you. all thank the drugs you. are bad you said what I said in a uh, English is a second language voice <laughs> and I appreciate that uh, Tom thank you so much for coming on I've been wanting to um, have you on for a very long time and the fact that we were able to make it happen really uh, means a lot to me so thank you so much and uh, again is there anywhere you want them to go Go check out or I'll, I'll put the link in. Is there anywhere you'd like them to buy the book more than other? How about that? Is there any well, place? I you'd- always
0: say the old trope, you know, if you have a small independent bookstore uh, and it's funny because, uh, you know, I went on, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Joe Rogan. Yeah, I've heard of him. We know, we
1: know about <laughs> him. We know.
0: Yeah, So I went on his podcast a year or two ago and that was kind of a game changer. And a lot of people, um, the book has been selling well ever since then. So I try to tell people to, you know, go to small bookstores. Here, here's another thing, and I shouldn't say this. The audio book, I'm not happy with. Um, the guy did a good job for, you know, but he didn't, he, he, he reads a lot of stuff kind of at the surface level. And hmm. like, if I'm making fun of myself, I'm very self-deprecating. He read it, you know, in the audio version as me being serious and got stuff. It, but
1: got it. Why didn't you do books? it? Why didn't Harvey? you read it?
0: Why didn't you read my it? My
1: agent talked me
0: out of it. The publisher wanted me to do it. And my agent said, you're such a perfectionist. You will have a nervous breakdown. You're in a booth and you can't change a word, a syllable, nothing. Everything that you wrote is already, you know, at the printing oh, press. Interesting, interesting. And you're going to want to edit and change. And he was right. And But I should have done it. Or I should have, you know, had a long talk with the guy that read it before just to tell him, you know that when I say something like, ironically, that there's irony there. And if you read it opposite that, the other reason I don't like people having the audio book is I think the most important part of the book is the 60 or 70 pages of endnotes yeah. at the back of the book where I cite all my sources. And it's really important when you're writing a book like this about conspiracy that you show your hand and nothing in my book isn't sourced. And also, I do that thing authors do, which is cheating, by putting even more information in the in the footnotes <laughs> yeah, that yeah. couldn't really fit into the main narrative. Yeah. But, you know, I'm happy if you get it. People love, a lot of people have told me they love the audio thing, so it might just be my own personal weird lack of objectivity for something like that. But, yeah, if they get the book, I'm happy. All and right. Yeah, and I like people going on my uh, my Instagram or Facebook because they, they can see documents, they can... Here are my audio tapes that I've done and snippets, and I have a lot of stuff that didn't end up in the book, and it's only stuff about the book and the case. It's nothing about me or my family, so.
1: Well, it is an excellent book, and I loved it, and I I read it cover to cover, which is, you know... uh, I, I buy a lot of books I don't finish all of them and I finish yours so I hope people right, take a moment to read it and check it out and you know just like Joe Rogan, you're gonna get flooded with tens of people buying your books so no no we'll get, we'll get we'll get you a lot of people because you know they're pretty um, they're pretty passionate about the show and they definitely like to go out and support all of our guests. So I appreciate you Tom. I'm looking forward to your next book whenever that happens and we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. You're the best. Guys, I hope to see you in Chicago this weekend. And we hope to see you at Texas at Flow Fest. Go to samtribly.com for all the tickets and everything like that. I love you very much. Thank you so much for your support. Hope you enjoyed the show. And we'll talk to you soon. We go deep, homeboy. <laughs> open your mic. <laughs> From the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That, 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 that's some interdimensional hey, idea. Oh <laughs> Wake up, Aaron! This is only the beginning. There's, you just blew my mind. Tim Foil hack Tim Foil hacking.